if you can't grow it, you have to mine it. Like it's not fairy dust. Um, you actually do have to have raw materials to make things out of. The Energy and Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by Locked In Companies and Galtway Marketing. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the Energy and Transition podcast. I'm Leslie Byer, your host. We're recording today virtually. We're not at the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio in Houston, um, but due to travel um, and us wanting to be able to visit with our guests, we're doing it virtually um, with Ashley in Fort Worth and us here at Buyer HQ. Um, in Houston. So we want to thank our sponsors, the Energy Workforce and Technology Council, Galtway Marketing, Lockton Global Energy Marine, and of course, Fletcher Azul Tequila. So let me introduce our guest. We are so thrilled to have Ashley Zumwalt Forbes with us. Ashley's the co-founder, president, and director of Black Mountain Metals, Black Mountain Exploration, and Black Mountain Carbon Lock. She joined Black Mountain after earning her MBA from Harvard and found an opportunity to launch Black Mountain Metals. Before that, she was a lead engineer at ExxonMobil and XTO Energy. She has significant technical experience and background in drilling, completions, and managing international shale operations. Um, despite all that international experience, she um, is from Oklahoma. She has her BS in petroleum engineering from the University of Oklahoma, a master of legal studies, oil, gas, and energy law from the University of Oklahoma. And then again, as I mentioned, an MBA from Harvard. So I just want to say, Ashley, your experience and what you bring to this industry is extraordinary. I'm so pleased and encouraged when I see a strong woman such as yourself in such a leadership role. So welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Leslie, and right back at you. You you are such a, a great representative. So I'm excited to be chatting with you today. Thank you. Well, I um, have talked a lot on the podcast and certainly at the you know, at, at certainly through the council about our mission on showing how companies that have been involved in oil and gas production, especially within the service sector, are such a critical part of the energy transition and, um, you know, really a, a solution and should not be kept away from a seat at the table as we, you know, accomplish and, and really look at the challenges of energy transition. And for the podcast right now, we're doing a series on critical minerals, rare earth minerals, uh, marine minerals, all of this. And you were talking about batteries and minerals before it was even cool. I mean, it's like yes. this 
Has yes, you, I'm OG critical minerals person over here. You are. I mean, I remember seeing you talking about this before it was really on our radar screen as such an important part of the energy mix and certainly the supply chain dynamics in, in the production of energy, whether that's renewable um, or hydrocarbons. So I really want to kind of walk through a little bit of your background, how you started Black Mountain Metals. Um, and, you know, maybe you can just start with kind of your, your technical background and then how you got to where you are today and a little bit about the company as well. Absolutely. So fantastic introduction. Thank you. It's all very nice. Um, so you're exactly right. You know, my background, grew up in Oklahoma. Um, no surprises here, but Oklahoma has a, a lot of oil and gas around. And so, um, you know, really got to know the industry and the personalities that were involved. Uh, my dad actually dropped out of high school and was a roughneck on an offshore rig. Um, and so, it, you know, very, very familiar with, with being boots on the ground, being hands-on, being operational, and genuinely the personalities and can-do attitudes within the industry. And that's what attracted me to the space. Um, so I went to OU, studied petroleum engineering, and then was lucky enough to, to get a job at ExxonMobil as a drilling and completions engineer in our international shale exploration group. Um, I worked 28-28, so 28 days on rigs, um, 28 days off. Days off were fantastic. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, I worked kind of all, all over the world. My main assignment was Argentina, um, but I touched projects in China, Qatar, Siberia, Georgia, the country, not the state, and Colombia, and then, and then Argentina. Um, fantastic experience. Hey, like from small town Oklahoma, I thought it was so fantastic to be one of the early movers in international shale. Um, I also really liked that I got to, to know more of the value chain than I probably would have going in as, as um, at more of a production stage. You know, you're trying to figure out regulations and procurement and, and union regulations and how to engage with the workforce on site and so much learning. It really was a fantastic first role to have. Um, that being said, I had always wanted to be entrepreneurial. So, you know, I say that and then you look and say, like, you worked at ExxonMobil when it was it was the biggest company in the world. And um, like, what are you like? What were you thinking? Um, look, I wanted to get really solid technical foundation on which to launch my entrepreneurial career. Um, and so that's what I did. So I left ExxonMobil, I went and got an MBA, um, really just to broaden my skill set, broaden my network, uh, to really kind of plug in those pieces of, um, of being able to, to, to know enough to ask the right questions. Uh, it's not like I gained a tremendous amount of kind of tangible or hard skills through that process, but I definitely became aware of the things I don't know. Um, and that has been incredibly helpful going forward. Um, from there, um, I, I met Rhett Bennett, who's CEO of Black Mountain, and had had an incredible run as an entrepreneur, super young guy, still super young, um, and, and wanted to join Rhett at Black Mountain. So moved to Fort Worth actually to work for Black Mountain Oil and Gas, but before I could join, they sold Black Mountain Oil and Gas, which is a fantastic, uh, fantastic transaction. Um, but I was, I was kind of left with like, well, what are we going to do now? Um, and, and Rhett really empowered me to 
to go figure it out, right? Um, and right around that time, electrification was starting to emerge on the scene. Um, Tesla was still the most shorted stock in the world. I think everyone thought EVs were a novelty or a bit of a blip. Um, but we just made the, the connection that it actually doesn't matter what the U.S. is doing at that stage. This was three and a half years ago. China was starting to make noises that, that they were encouraging EV adoption among their population. Their population is so large and their ability to bring down costs through kind of vertical integrated manufacturing is, is you know, unparalleled. And so you know that if China is starting to get on board, the rest of the world will come because you'll get cost parity between EVs and internal combustion engines. You'll get additional government incentives and then EVs will be widely adopted. Um, so, you know, we're not a technology group. We didn't wanna go out and make the best battery or become an EV manufacturer not because that's not really cool, but because it feels very binary. Either you're going to have great success, make a ton of money, or it's going to be a zero. And we're we're not into kind of venture capital return profiles. We're very much raw material operators. So just dug into electric vehicles, lithium ion batteries and said, what do you actually need in order for electric vehicles to, to be manufactured? And the answer is nickel, copper, cobalt, and lithium. Um, I list lithium last because there's actually, you know, lithium is kind of the salt on the salad. Um, in a lithium ion battery, you need more nickel than you need anything else. It's what gives energy density to batteries. So the more nickel in a battery, the further it can go without being recharged. And you really start maximizing this range variable of an electric vehicle, which is what everyone is focused on. Um, so from that fact, we basically went and said like, okay, well, where can you get nickel? Where can you get nickel? Who, who are the players? What do you do? Um, and you know, the, the largest class one nickel sulfide producer is Russia. Um, so Norilsk, we're Americans, can't, can't operate there. Um, then it's Canada. So the Sudbury Basin, fully controlled by Vale and Glencore. So as a small company, you know, you're probably not going to shake something loose from, from one of them. Um, and then that left the third largest producer, which is Western Australia, an area called the Kimbalda Dome. They were, uh, it was very fractured and owned by kind of several different junior mining companies that were all listed on the ASX. And so that's really where we focused our activities. Um, and now three years in, still really running, I guess three and a half years, which shocks me, but um, <laughs> still running strong and still very focused specifically on nickel and copper. Sometimes cobalt will come along as credits. Um, and, you know, we kind of play around the edges a bit, but it's mostly a nickel and copper story for us. Okay. And what's so interesting about all these conversations about how much of these critical minerals that we're going to need to promote, you know, more use of EVs, even, you know, batteries for a lot of things, not just electric vehicles. Everything has a battery. Everything. Your suitcase has a battery. That's insane. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> and so much of it is located, well, as I'm becoming slightly more educated on the topic, a lot of it 
um, does exist within the U.S. We just don't mine it. We have chosen not to for various reasons that we'll get into around mm -hmm. supply chain dynamics, but it is all in other areas of the world. Um, and that's interesting to know those basins uh, where the nickel comes from. And I was not aware that the nickel level in, in yes. the battery is what kind of helps it. Matters. Yeah, what matters. In my mind, it was all about the lithium. And I know that 90% of the lithium is processed in China. The bulk of it comes, I think, from there. And so, you know, that kind of will go a little bit out of order what we're going to talk about. But this, this supply chain discussion about where these metal, metals can come from and the critical minerals um, is, is an international, it's a global conversation. It does not include the United States. Um, so what do you, what do you have to say about that and, and China's yeah. dominance kind of in that space? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's actually quite interesting. I'd like to, to separate the concept between upstream and midstream. So we'll use, we'll use oil and gas terms to make it uh, super processable for, for the audience. The upstream piece, you should consider the mine phase, right? Like where the actual resource is, where it's being mined. So from that, you get, you get ore, ore then goes into, uh, ore is not a globally saleable product. You'll say it's like 3% nickel. I'm not going to load up 3% nickel ore and send it halfway around the world because it's going to be a fortune in shipping costs, right? So after, after the mine, it goes through a concentrator, which does exactly what it sounds like it would do. It increases the concentration of metal in the slurry. Um, so instead of 3% nickel or copper, like what, whatever, whatever you've got, um, it'll go up to 25 or 30%. Concentrate is globally saleable. So let's consider upstream the concentrator and above. Let's consider midstream from concentrate to um, nickel sulfate, which is the chemical that goes into precursors, which goes into lithium ion battery cathodes. That is predominantly where China plays. So China actually is not, look, it of course depends on the metal market, but they actually are, do not have huge endowments of minerals internal to the country. They have done a phenomenal job of two things. One, building out processing infrastructure. So for example, all the drama you always hear around rare earths, for example, it's because China controls all the midstream processing for rare earths. Some rare earths are mined in China, not all of them, but they are processed. It's like 90% in a, or above are processed through China, which we can, we can tackle that shortly. Um, the second thing China's done a great job of, and it's no secret, it's Belt and Road. Um, so they have gone into economies, made major infrastructure investments, whether it's toll roads, airports, ports, um, in, in, and then effectively control that country's mineral resources. So you see this across Africa, you see this in South America. And so it doesn't actually matter that the minerals are not in China, they're in places that are controlled by China. Um, in the case of lithium, uh, there are kind of two hot spots for upstream lithium production. One is called the Lithium Triangle in South America, um, predominantly Chile and Argentina. 
um, incredibly water intensive, like incredibly. And it is in the middle of the desert. Um, so it's actually a very controversial process. Um, Europe has effectively banned importing lithium brines for that reason. The other hot spot of lithium uh, is Western Australia. So you will continuously hear Western Australia. Western Australia is to battery metals what Saudi Arabia is to oil. I cannot underscore enough how important Australia and specifically Western Australia are to overall electrification. Um, the type of lithium that's in Western Australia is called spodumene. And spodumene is hard rock lithium that it, it's mined, right? It's like properly mined and not a brine that's more of a processing story. Um, so, you know, I guess my biggest takeaway for everyone from this discussion is that every market has very specific nuances. Um, so, you know, not all nickel is created equal. Not all lithium is created equal. The reason China controls the market is because of the midstream processing, not necessarily upstream. And there are ways around that. Um, one thing that I do think the U.S. has done well, um, and we can talk about what I think they haven't done well also, that they formed a critical minerals alliance with Canada and Australia. Um, very important, very important because both Canada and Australia have enormous endowments of these minerals and are very mining friendly jurisdictions. That makes sense, um, because you would think that there would need to be some kind of international collaboration if we're not going to either mine or process those things here in the United States. Um, so aside from the Critical Minerals Alliance, what other kind of regulatory framework needs to be in place? I mean, there's a lot to be said around mining itself. I know the, the international regulations around mining are similar to oil and gas development. Certainly you see environmentalists not wanting to, you know, have mining occur. However, we need the minerals. So what are what are some of the kind of things that need to happen or that you see in the space there um, at a global or US level? The Energy Workforce and Technology Council is the global trade association for the energy services and technology sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. Representing more than 600 member companies and 600,000 jobs in the U.S., the Council is transforming energy by providing members with tools, information, and representation to boldly enable a low-carbon energy future, safely, profitably, and sustainably. Through education, best practices sharing, supporting innovation and advocacy, we are driving a smart energy transition and empowering the energy workforce of the future. Biggest takeaway here, and it's this saying that's really common in mining. I don't hear it in oil and gas as much, but it's if you can't grow it, you have to mine it. And it's true. Like things just don't like it's not fairy dust. And um, you actually do have to have raw materials to make things out of. Um, something that I think the industry is now doing a very good job of getting on board with is transparency around what exactly is happening and two process improvements on um, how to actually make the mining process, the, the, the processing process, and therefore the mineral supply chain cleaner. Um, 
a group that I I swear I seem like an official spokesperson for this one specific group because I plug them constantly, but I think they're doing a phenomenal job. So I think people should know, but um, it's, a, it's a group called RCS Global. Um, and it's South African company founded by the South African guy. Um, originally it was founded to tackle the issue of blood diamonds. So, um, you know, in, in certain areas, um, it, it, blood diamonds are an issue. There are legitimate mines in those areas as well. And who are we to say that, sorry, XYZ country, you guys can't have jobs and create better lives for yourself because there are some bad actors. That is not our place. I think that's a very unfair stance to take. But what I do think is important is to raise the quality of mining in these areas such that people are getting these jobs and there's economic advancement in the area, but it's also safe. It's safe for people. It's environmentally friendly. Like we, we owe that to the world because just because, you know, the U S or the Western world turns our back on one country doesn't mean mining's not going to happen there. It just means the bad actors have full free range. And that's what RCS tackles. Um, so they used to do blood diamonds. I think they still kind of do blood diamonds. They've pivoted to cobalt in the Congo um, and they do phenomenal work. Um, so it's they don't just do cobalt now, they do nickel, they've kind of expanded and they have partnerships with basically every EV manufacturer. So um, I think Volkswagen and Polster, which is Volvo's EV brand, Tesla, Everybody basically goes through RCS for this certification so that you can put your hand on your heart and say like the metal that's going into this car, this battery was ethically mined and environmentally friendly, and they will pay a premium for that certification. That's an interesting point. But you know, a lot of those, it's so funny when you say that, and I'm sure that you realize this, that is an oil and gas argument as well. I mean, if we're going to pull oil and gas development out of the U.S. and, you know, really tie our own hands here, it's going to still happen. And it's going to happen under an environmental regime in Russia where, you know, they just obviously do not have the same um, focus. rules are not in place. Yeah, completely agree. That's interesting to know about this company, though, and I'm sure there are others like it. Um, but that does answer the question that a lot of people ask around human rights, um, you know, violations in, in the mining process, mm -hmm. you know, which obviously we hear about in the Congo, but I'm sure um, across the board with a lot of these minerals. And so when we talk about, okay, we're trying to get a regulatory framework, we know this is a global, you know, issue. Um, I mean, how much more do you think we're going to need for the demand for all these batteries that we're trying to create the infrastructure for here in the United States and, and abroad and in China and, and India as well? So a lot is the answer. But, yeah. um, I, frankly, um, so I guess, you know, never bet against human ingenuity. It is not immediately clear to me where all of the metal will come from. That's right. kind of like first message. And then how, how that it gets recycled after we use it. But I'm sure so, you're going to get 
that. Yeah. So the second point is that we do need someone to crack the code on recycling. Um, so there are a ton of good companies who are working on this. So Redwood Materials just announced a $700 million raise. Um, it, there's, there's Life Cycle. There, I, could, I could go on all day for the companies that are focused on um, how to recycle black matter and extract specific minerals and make the process cleaner. We need that to happen. Like that's kind of top of the list. That's that's the low hanging fruit, right? That's always going to be your cleanest metal. Um, and it should, after the code is cracked, be lowest on the cost curve as well. People always ask me, like, am I nervous? It, like, am I scared of the recycling people? And the answer is like, absolutely not. I mean, we need, we critically need more volumes in the market. Um, and it's not like the recycling volumes are just going to overtake the need to mine more material. Um, you need to mine more material. So what I will say, and this was one of the, the main reasons for um, the investment in Black Mountain Metals, what, but um, you know, after kind of the, the financial crisis, mining went through a really horrible time, like very depressed commodity prices. Companies were all in trouble. People were going to oil and gas instead. Like you could see that with the mining majors. Um, people were not investing in exploration in mining. And so in order to find a mine, it's genuinely a 20 year process, not a joke. Like there are reasons that there aren't mines all over the place. One hole does not make a mine and uh, greenfield exploration is the world's worst casino, right? It is very hard to string together a mineral, a mineral resource to justify building a mine. Um, so because we had that long period of very depressed prices, companies weren't exploring. And so we don't have this kind of wall of supply that's sitting there. Um, this is not meant to be alarmist, like we're running out tomorrow. It, we've got, you know, decades worth of, of mineral mineral resources in front of us, but there does need to be innovation. Um, and I am certain that, that people will rise to the challenge. Well, it's, that's an important point you make um, about there needing to be recycling regardless of what we can get. Especially when you think about, you know, is, and I don't know if the status corrected, it takes six times the mineral input for an EV than a regular, you know, combustion engine or regular car. So I think I think there's there's you know def, there's definitely two times more copper um, because copper is used for copper wiring. It's not actually in batteries. It's just wires. Um, so copper is used in internal combustions, but you need about I, I think it's double. I, I look, let's let we'll move on. There there's more. There's, <laughs> there's more. more. Um, and then certainly in the battery itself, um, the that is absolutely required. Um, I do think an important nuance here, though, and it's it's always you know I always see these reports and I'm like, oh my gosh, um, you know the the data is just not being represented correctly. And um, depending on who's both sides, like both sides, it drives me insane. But it is one of those things that. 100% EVs are more mineral intensive up front. 
but they don't require ongoing mineral maintenance, right? Like, like putting gasoline in the car. Um, so, you know, it kind of depends from a lifetime perspective, but you're exactly right. We need more metal. We need people to recycle it and the volumes have to get in the market. Well, that brings up another interesting kind of topic of discussion when you say, you know, everybody's wrong. Oh my gosh, it drives me insane. But both They're so married to their opinions on this. And, you know, everyone feels like it's a binary choice between an entirely renewable source and hydrocarbons. And that those are not, it's not the case. And that's just renewables aren't even entirely renewable. Right. so talk a little bit about, you know, what, what is misunderstood, you know, there in, in, from your point of view, you know, working with batteries, you know, you're, you're viewed as typically green, you know, and, and so how is that different and what's from your perspective different there? You'd actually be surprised. I am, I am broadly not thought of as very green because people think mining is incredibly dirty, but we can circle back to that and like how you count, how you counteract that, how transparency and actual data can prove that like not all companies are bad actors. And what I think the biggest misconception is, is that you cannot just snap your fingers in transition from a hydrocarbon-based economy to a 100% renewable economy. I genuinely think that is the biggest misunderstanding um, because we're decapitalizing hydrocarbons faster than we're removing the the demand. Um, And inherently, this will be a decades-long transition, and it should be. These are trillions of dollars of infrastructure at stake. Look, I'm I'm deaf. I'm by no means a climate denier. I know we have a problem. I know we need to improve. Purely from an operational standpoint, you can't completely phase out this enormous section of the energy mix, and nor should you. Um, I think there needs to be a lot of interim focus on efficiencies. Um, I think there needs to be a lot of focus on nat gas. I love nat gas. I will never not love nat gas. I think it's fantastic. Um, And as a third thing, I guess, um, there needs to be a lot of focus on on carbon capture and sequestration, which is why we started Black Mountain Carbon Lock. Um, So I genuinely think those are the interim transition pieces. And just generally, People need to kind of like hold hands here and get on board that it is not one size fits all. We need all solutions in order to reach the best outcome. I agree with that a thousand percent. Um, And that really is the best kind of talking point, especially with the companies that we work with that need to be able to execute across energy systems. So you bring up the Black Mountain Carbon Lock. Can you tell us a little bit about that company? It's obviously Carbon Capture, which is hot right now. And tell us how uh, y'all are operating and and what you're working on. Yes. Um, So two things. One, Australia. Shouldn't surprise you. I I spend more time on the phone with Australia than like any American should because it's like I'm effectively nocturnal, right? Um, But here we are. So Um, Australia is the world's largest exporter of LNG, world's largest exporter of iron ore, huge exporter of copper, gold, nickel, like enormously a resource economy. Um, And I think it's something that people just don't associate with Australia unless you're Australian. Like we just think kangaroos, like Great Barrier Reef, they are a resource powerhouse. Um, Super impressive, actually. Um, And so 
because a lot of their trading partners are Asian nations that now have net zero goals, Japan, South Korea, like these are these, this is who they sell LNG to, right? And um, effectively, it's an existential crisis for the Australian economy. Like, where do you go? Like, where do you go from here? Um, and as we all know, 2020 was very much a year of reckoning around focus on environmental standards and improvement. Um, and so as more and more announcements started getting made on net zero targets, um, I just we just asked ourselves like, uh, how how and in like how do we position ourselves to 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 benefit right and to be part of the solution? Um, first, we were very focused on trees, so there's been a whole evolution. We were like, okay, how you know because you got to figure out how to be carbon negative so that you can sell carbon credits and it's it but robust carbon credits, right? Um, started on trees that is like inherently how to be carbon negative is go plant a ton of trees here's the thing there are only so many trees that can be planted you can make money off of trees like, don't get me wrong there is a business model behind planting a ton of trees and um, it's not as scalable as what we wanted so we said okay like we'll put that to one side let's keep going and ended up forming a partnership with a company called Carbon Engineering, um, which is a direct air capture technology group based in Canada, and we're their Australian partner. So we'll be building a direct air capture plant in Australia, hopefully more than one, but just one right now. Um, it'll be a million tons per annum, pure sequestration, not EOR. Um, Carbon Engineering's other partners are Oxy here in the U.S., and then there's a company called Blue Dot in the UK. Um, so that's kind of the carbon engineering model is license the technology in different countries and then have executors go build those plants. Um, and so what we are doing is, you know, we're currently in the process of, of site selection, then we'll enter feed and then we'll actually we'll build the thing. Um, and then you what you have on the back end are are freely tra freely tradable very high caliber carbon credits it is undeniable that that credit you are selling result or is from a, a one ton co2 reduction it is not these kind of um less robust credits that are just from um from from avoidance so you can generate carbon credits by avoiding emissions as well you're not actually pulling co2 out of the air so to me that's not real like that doesn't actually matter to me um so we kind of jettisoned that one aside as well focus very much on removal so we're focused on direct air capture in australia the second kind of focus area is here in the us um, and currently it's with pre-combustion point source emitters. So for example, nat gas processing facilities and um, injecting that CO2, thereby, gen gen thereby generating 45Q monetization credits. That is a perfect and prime example of how a company that has historically been involved in an extractive industry has the skills and expertise and scale and ability to go in and play in these other you know technologies that that are gonna do things like direct air capture and create carbon credits for everyone else um you know i think that is an extraordinary story and look i think i think it just goes back to like 
people cannot dig their heels in here. I see so much of it from the oil and gas business saying like, oh, green, this is nonsense. Like, how, how are we going to make that transition? We're just burning money in a trash can. On the green side, people are pointing to oil and gas saying these people are bad. Why are they still producing this very polluting material? Like, why are they doing this? Um, and so I see it on both sides. People have just dug their heels in and decided the other side is completely wrong. And this isn't just the energy business, like this is everything. Um, but genuinely, you got to figure out how to bridge that gap, what technologies are going to bridge that gap, and how you can make money off of bridging the gap. Like that is what a business is supposed to do. I believe that a thousand percent is in, you know, like some companies will even maybe get their messaging a little skewed when they talk about their sustainability and they won't stay true to this is commercial. It is, you know, we have a responsibility to our shareholders to deliver, you know, there are opportunities um, for, for commercialization of the gap, you know, and, and we're the companies that can do it. 100%. So you're the perfect example of that. And it's so funny. I spend a lot of time in DC with my team and, yeah. you know, especially with this administration, you know, they're like shocked when we tell them, well, the companies we work with, they are, they are pulling carbon out of the air, you know, yeah. and they're like, well, how, how could they be doing that? They, they're not just an air capture company. No, because they have, you know, proven expertise in, in all of these fields. You know what else really just grinds my gears is um, I think one of the most important things in life is acknowledging what you don't know and just being humble enough to ask the question like, hey, I don't really understand what you do. Like, can you just explain this to me? Um, for whatever reason, we have just kind of lost that as a society. And I don't know if it's because everything moves so quickly or I don't know if it's egos. I'm not sure what it is, but we need a lot more question asking for exactly the reason you just outlined. Like if you just probed a little bit and this is on both sides of the fence, if you just probed a little bit, you could understand the picture much more clearly and we would have so much less drama around these subjects and honestly, across the board, much better outcomes. Absolutely. Um, you know, when you start, when you kind of teed up all of that, you talked about transparency and actual data. And I think that's an important part of all this. And we need people, you know, watching and wanting that. So when I hear those words, I think immediately about ESG and reporting requirements. Um, can you speak a little bit about like how you're looking at ESG through the mining lens, also through the carbon capture lens, through all the different business segments um, and, and what that looks like for y'all? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look, it's, it's you know, ESG or UN sustainable development goals, whichever way you kind of want to look at things like it's, it's a driving factor in, in our businesses um, and, and it's a main focus point for investors. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's much less around, trust me, I'm doing this. And it's much more around, here is exactly how I'm doing it. Here's the data, here are examples, um, and really trying to drive incremental positive outcomes. Um, and so ab absolutely 100% front of mind. Um, I think for, 
for, for every company it needs to be because it, the investment community is laser focused on this. Um, and if you cannot answer these questions or you blow them off and don't think they're important, you're no longer investment grade. And so that is inherently your job as a fiduciary to the company. Um, and so I, I think it's really important. I think pre 2020, a lot of people kind of thought ESG was the soft stuff and you could kind of blow it off. Like the world has proven it is linked to your ability to succeed. Absolutely. And, and we're working with a lot of our companies on that too. And it's, you know, there, it runs the gamut from companies that have embraced it and they're like, look, you know, here's how we're doing this. These are the examples. We see it as an opportunity to provide our, exa our examples instead of just saying, trust me. Um, so great. When I lied to you, you're like, the was something we always said at Exxon was it was um, in God we trust, but always bring data, like always, always bring, bring data. data, you know, just like show up with it and you'll figure it out. Well, Ashley, I just, we could talk for much longer about all these issues. You know, I, I just am so appreciative of the way that you have taken this company and you really are looking to fill the gaps. You know, you're taking all of this in mining and explaining things on, on these critical minerals and metals, and then also involved in the carbon capture piece. It's really such a great story to tell about a company, um, you know, involved in this space and the great work that we're doing in sustainability. So thank you so much for your leadership. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm um, so happy to have been here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And as soon as we can travel more, I mean, are you able to get to your facilities in Australia? No. I'm, I can't imagine you are. So no. you're doing all this remote. Yeah, I, I'm nocturnal. It, it's honestly, it's been a really, really horrible, like, year and a half so i was i cannot imagine yeah no it's been really it's been like genuinely very bad um so yeah. i uh, i was spending like 70 percent of my time in perth and then march 15th uh 2020 had to leave the country um and have not been able to go back so they have a hard border in place but i can travel a little so like i can still go to dubai um where some stuff um is is for the company and and can go kind of here and there, but not Australia, which is really hard. Well, I know that you are still making it happen um, <laughs> as so many people are in this crazy environment, but it looks like, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get it done soon. And I just wish you the best of luck and thanks again for coming on the show. So thanks everybody for listening. I wanna thank our sponsors. Um, don't forget to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks, bye. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.